Brothers and sisters, as they go, why don't you open up to Jeremiah chapter 17 in your pew Bible. It's page 645. This is our last week in this, in this series where we are focusing on uh, bearing fruit in our lives. And uh, my hope today is that uh, when you, you leave, you, uh, and as you, as you think about what God has taught you over the course of this short four-week series, my hope is that you are praying to God and saying, Lord, I want with all of my life, I want to bear fruit, whatever it takes. I want to bear fruit. I want to bear fruit in my life, and I want my life to look like someone who deeply loves and is deeply committed to you and you alone. That is my prayer. My hope is that you say, Lord, take my life, let it be, consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments, my days, my gifts, my talents, all those things, Lord. Take them and use them. And may my life bear fruit. So before we read Scripture, let me pray, and then we... We'll stand for the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Father God, this morning, I pray that by Your Spirit, You will open our ears and our hearts to receive all the good that is found in Jeremiah 17. Lord, all of Scripture, from Genesis 1 to the last page of Revelation, all of it is breathed out by You. And it is profitable. And so, Lord, we know that here in, in Jeremiah 17, Lord, this is good for us. It is feeding our soul. It points us to Christ. So, Lord, would you open our ears, open our eyes to see you. And, Lord, use me, your servant. And I rest upon you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of Jeremiah 17. Starting at verse 1 and going through verse 18. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars, while their children remember their altars and their ashram, besides every green tree and on, on the high hills and on the mountains in the open country. Your wealth and all your treasures I give you for the spoil as a price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger, a fire is kindled that will burn forever. So far, good news, right? Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in a man and makes strength his flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall see not any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that, does, that sends out its roots by the stream, that does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, searched the the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets rich, but not by justice. In the midst of his days, they will leave him, and at his end, he will be a fool. A glorious throne is set on high from the beginning in a place of our sanctuary. The Lord, O oh Lord, the 
hope of Israel. All who forsake you shall be put to shame. For those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord and the fountain of living water. And here, listen to 14. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be saved. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Behold, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. I have not run away from being your shepherd, nor have I desired the day of sickness. You know what came out of my lips. It was before your face. Do not be a terror to me. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. Let those be put to shame who persecute me. Let me not be put to shame. Let them be dismayed. But let me not be dismayed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The reality is God's intention for the Christian man and woman and child, those who have placed their faith in Christ alone, His intention for you is to thrive. Believe it or not, God's desire for you, His child, is to actually thrive. As As a Christian parent, the desire of my heart is that my children will thrive. That they will grow and they will be nourished and you will see them like a tree planted by the streams of water where they are bearing fruit and thriving even in the midst of the driest times of their life my desire is that they thrive but i am willing to bet that your life is much like my life where i have had seasons in my life that have felt more like this desert than a thriving forest where you you go i i can understand this picture of a shrub that is in this this salted desert wasteland that feels like my season maybe you've been there you you might be saying god i have no idea what you are up to i don't feel like much i i still do all the right things i look like a good christian from the outside i go to church listen god i even tithe and i'm i'm striving to go beyond a tithe i read my bible every morning i i pop it open or maybe i open it up on an app sometime or i've got some email the christian email that comes to me and i read it and i i i'm trying to grow in it i I find myself inviting friends to church. and I look at my life on the outside and it looks like everything is even fine there. I'm doing well at my job and my family. Yeah, sure, we have some struggles, but we're doing well. On the outs, but on the inside, beneath the surface, it just doesn't feel like there's much going on there. There isn't much real fruitfulness on the inside. Some of you may be there, yeah? Where you feel like, I'm doing all this activity, but my heart is struggling to really say, is there fruit? Is there life? Maybe you've been there for in this place for quite a long time, And maybe it's just been a short season. Maybe it's been a year. For some of you, you may even feel like it's been a decade or longer. And you can see where David says in the the psalm, return to me the joy of my salvation. It's a plea that David is saying in the psalm, Lord, return to me the joy of my salvation. The joy, that, that sweet spot of my salvation. But maybe you find your, have found yourself just stop praying even that prayer a long time ago because what, what's the use of saying something like that over and over and over again where it doesn't seem to be bearing much fruit? My question has been, what really is the difference? Really at a real basic kind of boil it down kind of level past all the easy Sunday school kind of answers 
how do we get beyond that? Beyond the do this and do that, believe this, and everything is going to be hunky-dory. Right? We're, we're sick of just really quick Sunday school answers. Believe this, do this, and smile. What is the difference between someone who, who bears fruit actually, actually bears fruit, and someone who doesn't? How can I, how can we be fruitful believers? And that is the question I want to ask and answer this morning. At the most basic level, what does it take to be a fruitful Christian? What does it really take? Part of me thought that maybe I should uh, start off the series with this. But I think it's good that we're ending this series with this question. So what does it take? So we can move next week. We can move even this afternoon towards fruit bearing. In our scripture this morning, we find Jeremiah delivering this. It feels like a scathing message, doesn't it? He says, listen, your sin is written on a stone tablet with a pen of iron and the tip of it is a diamond. So in other words, there's some real clarity about this sin. I am, it's, it's written in there really hard and nobody's going to erase it. I am putting it out there for all people to see. And you know what I'm going to do? Your, your kids are, are going to remember these altars that you have set up to all these false gods and everything that you have gained for yourself. You know what? I'm going to give it to you. Because that is going to be your reward. Because you have placed your hope in all these other things. So I am going to give you all this spoil as the price for your sin. You win. You got it. You want financial gain? You have it. You want notoriety and to be known in the community? You can have it. If that is what you think is the most important thing, God says, it's yours. If you think that that is the most important thing, he even goes on to say, did you see that in verse 5? Cursed. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. That's pretty strong words. Cursed is the man, woman, child, who places their trust in humanity, in the things of this world whose heart turns away from who? The Lord. He's like a shrub. He doesn't even see the good that has come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness and in this uninhabited, desert, dry land. Everybody, though, wants this life of this tree that is planted by the, by the water. We want this life that is blessed where we, we find ourselves thriving and growing and our leaves are green and it's bearing some really juicy kind of fruit. But to, to help us to understand this life, Jeremiah kind of gives us this dueling visual going on. He says, look at this shrub and look at this tree. The shrub just lives in the desert, a salt land where there is no life, there is no vibrancy, it is uninhabited, there is no other life around it, no plants, no animals. And Jeremiah uses this phrase that about this tr- shrub and he says, they shall not see any good coming. That shrub, maybe it's low profile, I don't know. But one of the characteristics of this shrub, this type of person, is they shall not see any good coming. A a better translation is is that it shall not see good when it comes. Not if, but when it comes. They can't even see it coming. God could be pouring out blessings after blessings on this type of person. Just common grace kind of goodness and they don't even know it. And it's sobering. The shrub is incapable of seeing God at work in their life. It's a stark contrast to the tree. 
But when he uses a contrast phrase for the tree, he uses it and says, listen, but the tree, this tree, does not have any kind of fear when this heat comes, when the trials come. They, They get, all of us get bad news, right? Every one of us in this room has experienced some kind of bad news in our lives. We, we have, all of us have these things that happen to us that are disappointing, that are setbacks. Some of them are major, but the, the person whose trust and hope is in the Lord is not afraid one bit. He describes the, the, the life of a tree-like person as one who is going through a season going through a season of life that is more severe than just heat. This person is not anxious at all in a year of drought. A whole year of drought. So you're going to be dealing with this for a long time. A a huge struggle in your life. But this tree, still in the midst of this season of of drought, of no rain, bears fruit. Isn't that crazy? It's like an oasis. It's bearing fruit. Is this you? Does this describe your life? Maybe you're finding yourself to be this shrub that is going, I I am in the middle of a salt-laden lake of sand. And I can't even see God at work anywhere in my life. Or maybe you find your roots deep into this soil of the gospel, reaching into these streams of water, and in the midst of all these trials and tribulations, you are still bearing fruit. How does this tree, this fruit-bearing tree in the midst of drought, how does it do it? How is it possible that in the midst of drought, a year-long drought, where normally everything withers up, you look at your lawn, and if it does not get rain or any kind of water for a week, it starts to turn brown, right? Except for the weeds. Think about a tree. After a year It is brown and dead. The difference is the tree is planted by water. It has a a water source that doesn't depend on something as circumstantial as rain. Its roots of this tree stretch deep into the soil. And what do you see in this picture? You see in this spiritual shrub, it, it is concerned about human strength it is its means and methods and proclaiming spirit or personal strength while demonstrating really weakness the shrub is a person who whose heart is a self-truster rather than faith in god and is consigned to just absolute fruitlessness in uninhabited desert wasteland But the tree of a person is one who trusts and hopes in God. He or she finds themselves on the banks of the river. A tree reaches out and down into the lively and with a lively and expansive root system that gives it death-defying confidence in the blast of summer heat. Green leaves and fruit are its symbols of blessing, which is the consequence of trusting in the Lord. So what is the primary difference? Hopefully by now you're going, okay, I get it, Paul, but maybe some of you are a little denser. What is is the difference between these two trees? The primary difference between these two trees is location. If you're been in the real estate world, you hear it, location, location, location. Location is key. So for us, Christian, the location of your trust is the difference between fruit-bearing and non-fruit-bearing. That's our first point, the location of 
your fruitfulness is based on, the location of your trust determines your fruitfulness. The location of your trust. There is one big problem, though. And in this problem, Jeremiah quickly kind of gets at it in verse 9. And some of us are really good at saying, Jesus, you are my trust. But in reality, there's a problem. And Jeremiah, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verse 9, says, let me tell you what the problem is. The, the heart is what? It, deceitful. It is. The heart is deceitful. The heart is deceitful above all other things. And it is your heart. I love this. Your heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Okay, so the location of my trust determines fruitfulness, but I've got a problem here. The problem is I've got a sick, deceitful heart, and I can't even understand it. Jeremiah says, who can understand it? It's kind of that rhetorical question. I don't know. I, I don't know because I can't understand me. This is... This passage, this, this verse, verse 9, is kind of one of those things, if you've been in the church for any length of time, if you've been in, involved in high school or college ministries, this, this passage is used a lot. This, the heart is deceitful above all other things. But God puts this verse in, in this chapter for an intentional reason. The, the historical context actually matters. God wants us not to make the same mistake. You see, Judah, during this time, they were extremely wealthy. They had all the bells and whistles, but they slowly got sucked off to enjoy the things of the world. They found themselves getting caught up in the power and the strength of mankind. Do any of you struggle with that? The answer is yes. Every one of us. And God is saying, listen, if it's true for Judah, it is true for you. Every one of you, your heart is deceitful. It is desperately sick. And God is saying, listen, do not make the same mistake. And if you would stop and ask the average Israelite on the street that day, and you put these two trees next to them, and you show them a visual, and said, which one are you? Which one do you think Israel is? They would have said, well, obviously, we are, we're the chosen people. We obviously are the fruitful tree. But there was something wrong with their heart. You can even see the tone and the tenor towards the end of uh, that whole section. I have not run away from being your shepherd, nor have I desired the day of sickness. You know what came out of my lips. It was before your face. Listen, I've been telling you the same story over and over again. Jeremiah is this poor guy who has this terrible message and he keeps going back to these people and saying, here's the message, here's the message. Your heart is desperate. You're, you're really sick. You Listen, you need this message. Put your trust in the Lord. But they were not fruitful, even though they thought they were fruitful. They had forgotten the words of, of Solomon and so in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to man. It seems right up here, but in its end, it is the way to death. I think I'm, I'm all good. It seems right, but I've also got to remember that my heart is deceitful. That my heart is broken. And that way, my way seems to be right, but in the end, it can very well lead to death. Human beings, my friend, you have this amazing, amazing capacity for self-deception and self-justification, don't we? Every one of us. We have that, that spiritual gift non-spiritual gift of, of self-deception and self-justification. I'm doing really good. I'm doing all the right activities. I'm, I'm doing these things, but 
in reality, it's a way that's going to lead to death. So here's the second thing. The second thing, that there is no way that you can determine on your own whether or not you are a fruit-bearing follower of Jesus. There's no way. On, on your own, if you were just walking the, the streets, there's no way to really determine for yourself that you are a, an amazing fruit-bearing follower of Jesus Christ. And some of you are going, hold on a second. That doesn't seem right. Here's the reality. What I'm trying to say here is that God has created none of you to be islands to yourself. But we tend to be quite individualistic, don't we? We, we tend to be those people who would like to be on my own. I know what's best. I am a kingdom of Paul. And I am the king, and I sit on the throne, and I make the rules, and I determine what is fruitfulness and what is not fruitfulness. And here, we are reminded by Jeremiah, listen, your heart is quite deceitful. You, you have a way of self-deceiving yourself. Don't forget that. And th there's two ways that God has given you a way to help you understand whether or not you are actually bearing fruit. One is His Word. You, do you want to get to know God? Do you want to know... As you read this, it tends to be a mirror, and you look into it and you go, I am broken. I am not bearing fruit. I am not who God has called me to be. You want to know? This is one way that you can understand your heart and your intentions by opening, actually opening His Word and diving into it and meditating on it, chewing it and ruminating on it and thinking hard about it. And I, I used uh, a couple weeks ago about make, reading stuff that makes your brain sweat. Thinking deeply about Scripture. Hearing sermons that are Gospel-centered, Christ-exalting stuff so that your eyes are opened up. So that's number one way. But here's... Here's what another commentator said. One way, our minds, one way our minds are crooked is that we have an infinite number of ways of justifying any action we'll take. Infinite number. <laughs> For instance, the actions that, that avoids trusting in God and puts us in control of safeguarding our destinies. Our minds are wretched insofar as there's no way we can cure our minds of their malaise. Further, because the only instrument we have for understanding our own minds is our own minds, we have no way out of this vicious circle. Depressing. Even when we don't want to know the truth at one level, at another level, we don't want to know. And we, we find ourselves, find, find ways of hiding the truth from ourselves. So if we are, we're in Scripture, and yes, and amen, this is absolutely necessary, but God has created us not to be islands. He's created us and integrated us by adoption to be a part of a family. He's, he said, listen, you need people. Christian, you need this family. You need to be integrated and connected to one another. If you are not a part of a local church and you have not said, I, I will be a part and I will be accountable, I will submit myself to the leadership of this church. If you are choosing not to do that, you're saying, listen, I, I'm choosing to be self-reliant. And knowing my heart I can make it through this world. And Jeremiah says, no, your heart is quite deceptive. And it's desperately sick. Maybe, maybe you haven't seen this in other people. But maybe you have. Maybe you're saying, listen, brother, sister, friend, you're making some terrible decisions. 
everyone sees it but you. Have you ever had those conversations? Brother, sister, you, you are making some terrible decisions and everybody sees it but you. And what often is the, the response of the other person? You're being judgmental. You don't understand what God is telling me. Yeah, but he's integrated you into a family and we're seeing this. We are seeing this. It, it's, like, it's like a piece of lettuce stuck in your teeth and during a meal, right? And that person is talking, just gabbing away, and their hands are moving, and I, they got this big thing kind of hanging in their teeth, and you're going, I can't hear anything you're saying. You got, you got this thing right here, and it's freaking me out. They keep on smiling. They keep on talking. They, they keep on thinking like, man, this is great. And it's like I can't even understand, or I can't even pay attention to you because you got this piece of lettuce hanging out of your teeth. We can't see the reality out there because we're blind often to our own broken heart. We're blind to the sinful lettuce hanging out in our teeth. A couple, even a couple weeks ago, I read this article in the New Yorker. And the article was entitled, Why Facts Don't Change Our Minds. And uh, it il il illustrates this kind of stuff. And it was intriguing to read the research out there from a secular point of view that reinforces a lot of this about how we rarely change our minds even when the facts are against us. The facts are absolutely clear. We rarely change our mind. We're in the groove of doing things the way that we've always been doing things, right? Any of you find that? In your religious, political, financial, sexual, you, you fill in the old, your own blank. Even when the facts are against us, we rarely change. I, I, I highlighted this uh, from that article. Presented with someone else's argument, we're quite adept at spotting the weaknesses. Almost invariably, the positions we're blind about are our own. If you can see this in others, don't you think the same is true for you? Paul Tripp puts it this way, you are blind to your blindness. It's kind of a damned if you do and damned if you don't, right? You're blind to your blindness. But let me be even a little bit more blunt, and I'm going to do it, try to do it to the best with all, all the love that I can muster. Most days, you are your own worst enemy. The biggest problem that you have in your life, apart from maybe being apart from Christ, of course, is you. It is the lies that you tell yourself and the lies that you begin to believe about yourself. And then you turn around and try to convince yourself that you are living in this beautiful truth of your own lies. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? And this is an insurmountable problem to take on by yourself. And it's a, a circle, isn't it? It's a vicious circle. So point number three is the bad news and the good news is that we, can't, we don't know and we can't know the truth about ourselves, but... God does know. Jeremiah 17.10 follows quickly after that. Jeremiah 17.9 I the Lord who does? I the Lord search the heart and test the mind. Thank God that He does it because He knows. I, I, I search and test the mind to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds we can't trust our hearts we can't trust our minds we can't know ourselves but you know who does god god does and that phrase test the mind it's literal translation in the hebrew is test the kidneys it's kind of a gross kind of picture you know god's testing your kidneys and you know what 
kind of goes on in the kidneys, right? And God is testing it. And it's this Hebrew idiom of just saying that God knows the deepest and most secret parts of who you are. He gets to the core of the core of the core. He gets down deep and dirty. There is nothing in your hidden life that is hidden from Him. He knows all of you. We can live in God's care. He warns us not to trust our own hearts, to trust our own strength, but it is only so that we trust in Him instead. He's not saying, hey, don't trust in financial wealth, but you can trust in your wife. No, he's saying, that's not even good enough. Trust in me. Church, this is not just a declaration, a proclamation of truth. This is a a great truth statement, yes, but it is an invitation to relationship. It's a call out to say, hey, get out of the desert. That's where you've been living for so long and be replanted by these streams of living water where your life will never cease to bear fruit. Come on, come enjoy, taste and see that he's good. This is where your leaves will always be green, even in the midst of drought. Come. And Jeremiah brought this invitation to Israel. He he brought bad news upon bad news. But we know quite well, if you read through the book of Jeremiah, that no one listened to Jeremiah. They did not respond to his message at all. They rejected God's invitation. Some spoke out against Jeremiah, and some even contradicted, even worse, his message. But we do know that one person, one person responded to this invitation, this invitation of come to me, be replanted by the streams. And do you know who that person was? Jeremiah. Jeremiah responded. A few verses later in verse 14, we have this prayer. Grace, can you throw it up there? Because it has some highlighted things. He says, heal me. Heal me, O who? Lord. And I shall be saved. Save me, and I shall be saved. For you are my grace. Jeremiah delivers this this hardcore message and then in a moment of personal revelation where God lifted up the scales of his, his eyes and the hardness of his heart and in that personal moment he cries out for help. He cries out for help. He sees these trees. He knows which he wants to be. He sees the problem in his own heart. He sees God as the proper and the right and the good and only solution. And what does he do? He doesn't just academically go, oh yeah, that makes sense. He doesn't write a confession. He doesn't write a a catechism about it. He immediately cries out for help. And says, listen, Lord, heal me. Start with me, O Lord. And if you will, that, then I shall be healed. Save me. Save me. You see where his trust is, though, right? It's in the Lord. If you heal me, I, I'm healed. If you save me, I'm definitely saved. His trust in the Lord is, for you are my praise. Which leads to the fourth thing. When you cry out to God for help, He always answers yes. And some of you are going, hold on a second. What about all my prayers that haven't been answered? But this is based off of what we see here in verse 14. And it's also, well, let me get to it in a little bit. There are some prayers that God always answers with a yes. Always. And this is one of them. Heal me. Save me. The true cry out of the heart. Help me to know you more. Yes. Expose my idolatry so I can worship you more fully. Absolutely. Father, reveal my shortcomings as a, as a husband and as a dad so that I can lead my family better to worship you and you alone. And God says, I will. 
Lord, forgive my sins. I have no excuse, but I throw myself on the grace of the cross. And God goes, absolutely. God, let me be a fruitful tree. Mold me, replant me, so that my roots will go deep into the gospel, so that I will not fear or be anxious when the heat or a drought comes up. Make me fruitful so I can display your glory. And God goes, yes, I'll do it. Friends, we're all too familiar with Romans 10.9, which says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that, that God raised him from the dead, Romans 10 says, you might be saved. No, it says, you will be saved. Those are the kind of prayers that God answers to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. Thank God. A humble prayer, Lord, heal me, save me. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It is the kind of people who recognize they are under the burden of the weight of this world, the sin of, that causes death spiritually and emotionally and relationally. We're under this and we recognize there is nothing I could do on my own. And in a position of humility, we say, Lord, save me. And what do we receive? Grace. If you call on anything else, anyone else, if you rely on yourself, you will be this shrub in a, stranded in a spiritual wasteland, not even able to see good when it's coming your way. You'll wonder why nothing ever changes for you. You blame others and you blame your circumstance, but you never take a good, long, hard, deep, and honest look at you. And that is not what God wants for you. So let me give you some quick closing thoughts. If you want to go from a, a desert to this stream of water, I'm going to give you some three, three things. One, you need to be replanted. Just like a tree can't replant itself, a tree doesn't just giddy up and kind of walk over here because it's kind of rooted over here. Christian, God has to replant you. God has to move you. And for some of you, I don't know the condition of all your hearts. Maybe you aren't a Christian at all. There's no way that you could do this on your own. In fact, you can't do it on your own. In faith, you have to respond to your brokenness, your need to be replanted, your need to have somebody take your place and say, Lord, heal me, save me. And He will. All of us, no, longer how, no matter how long we've walked with God, when we see our sin and idolatry, we need to be replanted. And to be replanted, you've got to get down on your face before God and cry out, change me. Search me, O oh God. Search me, O oh God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Which is a scary thing sometimes, right? See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me, God, in this path to everlasting you don't know your heart he knows it and he will tell you and he will show you if you really ask and if you ask in community which leads me to three and number two you need godly you need godly friends brothers and sisters in christ who will intentionally walk beside you and say the hard but loving things to you you need those kind of friends. If you are surrounding yourself and you're desiring to have friends who are just your cheerleaders, welcome to the desert land. You need friends who say, hey, listen, you're dropping the ball, brother. You're doing what, sister? You need people who you fi find a few friends and you need to say to them, listen, I need, I desperately need your help. Will you please speak into my life? Will you, will you tell me when I'm not believing the truth? Be, be gut level, lovingly honest with me. Tell me things. Would you tell me things that I don't want to hear? That's a scary request. Tell me things that I don't want to hear. 
And then your task is to listen and believe them. And when you begin to see things in your life, when, when your sin, your pain, your idolatry, your hurt is on the table in all of its nastiness, ask, ask them these, ask these questions. How does Jesus change me in this situation? How does Jesus' perfect life, how does his death on the cross for my sins, his resurrection bring new life to change me? How should it change my thinking? How should it change how I feel? How does it change my relationship with God? How does it change the way that I relate with others in this world, with myself? Friends, there's nothing, nothing about me that cannot be revealed, that is not already covered by the blood of the cross of Christ let me say that again there's nothing about me there's nothing about you that will be revealed that is not already covered with the blood of Christ so don't freak out I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna share this don't worry it's covered by the blood of Christ thanks be to God he's got that in control he's got after all right that is why we can be honest that's why you you should be honest. What would your life be like if you lived in this type of honesty and vulnerability before God and other people? Listen, I, I, I know this is covered by the blood of Christ, but I've got to confess this. Here's my struggle. Here's my pain. And I need you to walk alongside with me. And people don't go, ooh, I don't know. If I hang out with you, I'm going to get kind of dirty. Well, look at... Jesus was accused as a friend, to be a friend of sinners. <laughs> we should be in good company. And here's the last encouragement for those of you who find yourself in a season of extreme spiritual dryness. You have found yourself in, in a season, in a year, and maybe even a decade of going, God, where are you? I've been searching. I've been longing for you. And a Scottish preacher, Thomas Boston, in his sermon called Human Nature in Its Fourfold State, in case you want to look it up, made some helpful comments about these dry periods of the Christian life. He said this, A tree that has life and nourishment grows to its perfection. Yet it is not always growing. It grows not in the winter, right? We often think that we're, we're in Florida where things seem to grow year-round. But uh, Thomas Boston says trees don't grow in the winter. Christians also have their winters wherein the influences of grace necessary for their growth cease. What then will become of the soul? Why? there's still one sure ground of hope. The saint's faith is not like the hypocrites, like a pipe laid short of a fountain, whereby there can be no conveyance. Do you see the picture? What is the Christian's? It is piped all the way to. It still remains a bond of union between Christ and the soul. And therefore, because Christ lives, and he does, you know, we do it, he's risen. He's risen indeed. He's alive. Every, Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday for the church. He's alive. He's risen. He's risen indeed. So because there still remains a bond of union between Christ and the soul, and therefore, because Christ lives, the believer shall live also. In the worst of times, in the worst of times, the saints have a principle of growth in them. Therefore, after decays, they revive again. Namely, when the winter is over and the sun of righteousness returns to them with his warm influences. I need to hear that. In my dry spiritual state sometimes, I need to hear that, much like Chronicles of Narnia, the winter is over. 
suffering has come. And now I can experience life again and growth again under the sun of righteousness and all of his warm influences. So friends, stretch your roots towards the grace that is yours in Christ Jesus. Friends, God has not given up on you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And I want you to think what would happen to our church if most of us started living like this. I am so over my time limit. But this is necessary for our soul. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, um, I pray that we will be able to cry out, heal me, O Lord, and I shall be saved. Save me and I shall be saved for you are my praise. Lord, that, may that be the cry of our heart, our starting place every, every morning, every bump in the road. Lord, would you save me, heal me, bind up my brokenness, illuminate the dark spots in my life with the, the light of the gospel and bring life and hope and healing to my, my broken life. And Lord, may we in those dry seasons, may we find ourselves warmed by the sun of righteousness and experience being replanted by the streams of water being nourished even in droughts. Lord, may we bear fruit as a congregation and as individuals. And we pray this in Jesus' name.